This episode is brought to you in association with the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson, each month we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Joining us today is Dr. Robert Goldenberg, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Columbia University School of Medicine. Dr. Goldenberg practiced high-risk obstetrics for over 30 years and has also served as director of the Department of the Maternal and Child Health for Alabama's Department of Health. He is a member of the Institute of Medicine and its Committee on Improving Birth Outcomes in Developing Countries. He has also played leading roles in the March of Dimes Prematurity Prevention Study, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, as well as leading multiple studies for the NICHD in investigations evaluating growth retardation, low birth weight, as well as HIV transmission. He has also directed the Office on Smoking and Pregnancy for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He is currently Principal Investigator for the Pakistan site for the Gates NICHD Global Network and also chairs the National Institute of Health's Stillbirth Research Network. He has consulted on pregnancy outcomes in Egypt, Colombia, Zambia, India, and Armenia. He has published nearly 580 journal articles and has served on the steering committee for the Lancet Stillbirth Series and wrote the final paper in that series, The Call to Action. He is currently working on a Bill and Melinda Gates-funded project creating a computer model mandate that determines the maternal, fetal, and newborn lives saved by employing various interventions in the home, clinic, and hospital with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Today, Dr. Goldenberg joins the American Journal of Perinatology in a discussion of his recent publication entitled, Transamic Acid to Reduce Postpartum Hemorrhage, a Mandate, Systematic Review, and Analysis of Impact on Maternal Mortality. This manuscript was authored by Elizabeth McClure, Bonnie Jones, Doris Rouse, Jennifer Griffin, Bina Kamath-Rain, Alan Downs, and Robert Goldenberg. This manuscript was published on October 7, 2014. We are honored to have Dr. Goldenberg with us today to discuss the use of transamic acid for the prophylaxis and treatment of postpartum hemorrhage in low-resource settings. Specifically, the potential impact of this therapy is explored with regard to the prevention of maternal mortality in sub-Saharan Africa. Dr. Goldenberg, we want to thank you for joining us this morning to review your paper. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to get some of this information out to people. This paper is coming to us at a very timely point, both on a global as well as a national scale, where we're really beginning to look at ways to reduce maternal mortality. And I think you've put together a very interesting combination of a unique intervention for reduction as well as combining this with a computer analysis. I was wondering if you would take a few moments just to discuss the differences given your history in working in global medicine, the differences in postpartum hemorrhage in the United States versus the global scale of this problem. Globally, there are probably about 300,000 maternal deaths worldwide each year, and about a third of those deaths, or 100,000 of them, 
are due to postpartum hemorrhage. So postpartum hemorrhage is clearly the world's biggest killer of mothers. In the United States, the picture is different. There are far less maternal deaths. For example, in some African countries, the maternal mortality ratio is about 100 times higher than it is in the U.S. But nevertheless, in the U.S., postpartum hemorrhage is still a killer of mothers. It doesn't kill as many now as it used to. We've clearly made a lot of progress in that, but it still does kill mothers. It is no longer the major killer in the U.S., however. Now, one of the things that you point out is that postpartum hemorrhage can really be caused by multiple different etiologies. And so there probably is not a one-fix-all solution when we talk about this. And clearly, you focus here on transamic acid use. I was wondering, how did you come to that decision to focus on transamic use? The backstory for this is sort of interesting, because I'll confess that even though I've been a practicing OB for many years, I wasn't even aware of transamic acid. We were asked by the Gates Foundation to use our model to determine if this was something that they should consider funding. And so we used our model for postpartum hemorrhage. And as we did, it became clear that there was at least a lot of potential to reduce maternal mortality, say, in sub-Saharan Africa using this particular intervention. And so I think they are going to put some emphasis on better understanding uh, the utility of this drug, but based on our analysis, thought that it was worth studying further. So it looks like transexamic acid has been used in other settings as well, such as trauma, and it seems like the trauma literature has really pushed this along from the standpoint of demonstrating better outcomes, less bleeding, and certainly we do have a lot of agreement between the causation of maternal mortality, both between trauma as well as obstetrical hemorrhage, as in this case. Now, one of the, I'm sure, very challenging aspects of this was to evaluate in the literature what is the effect of transexamic acid in reduction of bleeding. So how did you proceed to really validate this as a treatment? First, we did an extensive literature review on transexamic acid, and what became clear was just exactly what you said is that it's been effective in reducing post-operative blood loss from many different kinds of surgery, following dental procedures, and there's a recent large study that it reduces deaths following trauma. So based on that, there's a good likelihood that it would stop other kinds of bleeding as well. And then we went into the obstetric literature, and there's very little on tranexamic acid, but there are some studies that suggest a, a reduction in blood loss following cesarean section, and it's clearly used for women who have menorrhagia, and it's effective in reducing bleeding from that. So based on that kind of literature review, we estimated that if used correctly, tranexamic acid would either prevent or treat postpartum hemorrhage and reduce mortality approximately 30%. And so this is a guess, and we did some estimates of what would happen if it reduced mortality by only 20% or 40% to try to get a range. But we used approximately 30% as our best estimate of its potential reduction. Now, in this assessment, you really restricted this to sub-Saharan Africa. What are the unique features of sub-Saharan Africa that are particularly helpful in designing a assessment of an intervention for postpartum hemorrhage in this population? We could have used any place in the world, but we've been particularly interested in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, number one, because of the huge mortality rates there. And 
we were doing this study because the Gates Foundation asked us a specific question about Sub-Saharan Africa. But in any case, Sub-Saharan Africa has huge maternal mortality rates. And they have huge maternal mortality rates because most of their babies are not born in hospitals. They're born either at home, cared for by lay midwives, or in clinics with very little resources to save a woman's life, especially from bleeding. So we were interested in what would happen, not in a place where modern medical care was available, because in the U.S., there's all different kinds of surgery that could prevent hemorrhage. There's blood transfusions, and there's all kinds of supportive care. For most women delivering babies in Africa, there is none of that. So we were looking for a prevention or a treatment that would be able to be used even for women delivering at home. Right, and I believe this specific intervention does not require refrigeration, and it certainly can be provided as an oral medication as well. Right. In your manuscript, it looks like even 50% of women are delivering at home and around 35% in a health clinic, with only 15% of deliveries occurring in a hospital. And so certainly it does appear there is a very high likelihood that if you were pregnant in sub-Saharan Africa that your delivery would be attended outside of a hospital. Are there trained, skilled delivery attendants available in this area for home delivery? Not many. So one of the issues always in sub-Saharan Africa is to come up with interventions that could be used by lower skilled people. So in many areas, even though the deliveries are performed by a what we would call an untrained or lay midwife or a traditional birth attendant, usually in the areas there are, say, some of the health clinics, nurses or clinical officers with some medical training. For different studies that we've done, it's been possible now that cell phones are readily available almost everywhere to get a person with some medical experience even to attend at home. They don't usually do deliveries, but they certainly could give an injection or provide oral medication. So in this case, you applied all of the data, and the information actually it looks like for describing the population was found in the NIH Public Access PubMed Central that I was able to review looking at the specifics of the estimated rates of postpartum hemorrhage. And clearly, there's about an 8% rate estimated in the hospital, a 10% rate in a health clinic, and a 2% rate in the home, even though we probably recognize that there's probably significant underreporting when it comes to home delivery. And you did estimate the efficacy of transexamic acid to prevent postpartum hemorrhage at 30%, with an instance of postpartum hemorrhage at around 11%. Now, right. all of these background pieces of information were then loaded into a computerized model. Can you tell us a little bit about the mandate model and how it was developed? This is about four years ago. Again, we've worked extensively with the Gates Foundation, and they asked us to build a model that would help them decide where they should put funding to reduce maternal mortality, stillbirths, and neonatal mortality, with a specific emphasis on sub-Saharan Africa and India as well. So we built this model. It turned out to be much more complex than I think they were expecting or we were expecting. But the model we have used now for a number of different studies, and it's being used by people like USAID and a number of other organizations to try to help them understand where they should put their emphasis in either developing new interventions or applying interventions in 
lower income countries. Collecting the data to use in the model, I guess, first of all, was an arduous task. And we've had three or sometimes even four people with Master of Public Health degrees spending several years trying to find the best data for this. As you can imagine, it's very hard to get really good data on where women are delivering, what drugs they're getting, what interventions they're getting, what their mortality rates are. And so we have done the best we could, but we understand that the data that we're using is not perfect. It also appears that one of the strengths of this would also be that once the model is built and new data comes along, then it's probably easy to update or modify this, I assume. Yes, absolutely. So the model, I guess, to start with, takes into consideration the different medical conditions that kill mothers, babies, fetuses. And so we built a model for postpartum hemorrhage that, to start with, did not include tranexamic acid, but we looked at interventions like mesoprostol or oxytocin or blood transfusion or we looked at a lot a lot of different interventions and actually have published those previously but when Gates Foundation came to us and asked us to look at tranexamic acid it was very easy to plug that into the model and come up with some estimates about lives saved and so we had the model it really only took us three or four days to actually do the analyses because we had built the model already. That sounds like a very flexible model that could be applied to other clinical problems in obstetrics, but probably also outside of the obstetrical realm. I could see this being used in many other clinical problems that we face in medicine. It certainly could be, although just doing it for obstetrics took years out of our lives, and so I'm, I'm not sure that I have the energy to do that, but um, certainly other people could use a similar you know, approach. We have already examined, for example, preeclampsia and the interventions needed to reduce maternal mortality and stillbirth from preeclampsia. And we're looking at all the causes of stillbirth and trying to come up with what's the best program that one could initiate, again, in sub-Saharan Africa to reduce stillbirths. And we've done a similar analysis on neonatal death looking at all the causes and then the potential interventions, trying to decide if you had a limited number of resources, how could you save the most newborn lives? Do you go after infection? Do you go after asphyxia and so forth? Certainly. I think for the listeners today, figure one in your manuscript looks at the mandate condition map, where you actually mapped out all of the steps from the pregnancy to the postpartum and looking at the interventions that would occur for hemorrhage in kind of a structured manner. And then if the postpartum were complicated by hemorrhage, you then classified hemorrhage according to retained placenta lacerations or an atonic uterus. And then for each of those conditions also had a structured approach to how these individuals would be treated. Now, what I noticed about this is transexamic acid was included both, it looks like, as a prophylactic intervention at the time of encountering hemorrhage as well as a treatment level when you had a severe postpartum hemorrhage. Can you comment on your thoughts as far as prophylaxis versus treatment in the use of this medication? With prophylaxis, you would need to give the drug essentially to all women that are having a baby before or just around the time of delivery or right after delivery before there was any evidence of postpartum hemorrhage. And so prophylaxis is potentially expensive because you're giving a lot of women drugs, and it's also potentially 
risky because there may be side effects. There have been no demonstrated so far, but there may be side effects that if you gave it to enough women would become apparent. But that said, if you can prevent the bleeding from the beginning, then you don't get into all of the other stuff that one would have to do to prevent the death from postpartum hemorrhage. For treatment, you can certainly target it better, but at that point the woman is already in danger. So there's pros and cons to the use of prophylaxis versus treatment and what we actually modeled was doing both. It looks like, according to the model, about half of the deaths could be prevented by prophylaxis and, and the other half would be prevented by treatment. So we modeled out both. And if we were going to put together a program based on what we saw here, we think it would be best to use both approaches at the same time. I think you also took a real-world view of how this would actually take place in the clinical realm of sub-Saharan Africa by analyzing your prophylaxis as well as your treatment according to either very high penetration and utilization, which you defined as 99% utilization in each setting, or a real-world approach, which is a home would probably have a 65% penetrance an 85% utilization in the clinic as well as a very high utilization in the hospital setting. And you were able to demonstrate really significant reductions of postpartum hemorrhage deaths using transexamic acid either as a treatment or as a prophylaxis. So I think that is really a very powerful take-home point here, not only for developing countries. I was wondering from your clinical background, do you see this being something to add to our current armamentarium here in the United States, where resources are certainly a lot more available? But does this data also extend to our current search for improving maternal mortality here in the U.S.? That I'm less sure about because, again, most of the deaths in the U.S. are now occurring, most of the maternal deaths are not due to postpartum hemorrhage. They're due to other things like cardiomyopathy and various cardiovascular mm -hmm. things, infection, amniotic fluid embolus, that sort of thing. Clearly, there are individual cases where the woman is bleeding that tranexamic acid might very well have a role, but somebody would need to explore that better. But I just can't believe that if it reduces hemorrhage during surgery mm -hmm. and during trauma, that for the kinds of hemorrhage that we see in the United States, which is often post-cesarean infection, that it wouldn't have a role as well. Absolutely, especially in our current fight against the invasive placenta. Right. The really interesting thing about tranexamic acid is that it looks like it would be effective over various causes of hemorrhage. So if, if you go internationally, the major cause of postpartum hemorrhage is uterine acne but women also die of hemorrhage from lacerations or retained products. And there's at least a suggestion in the literature that tranexamic acid works across all of those different diagnoses. That's very helpful information. You commented that it has several qualities that would make this ideal for low-resource settings, which included a very low cost, a very favorable safety profile, as well as the ability to store this and also administer it orally, and concluded that if we had perfect utilization of this medication for both prophylaxis and treatment, it's possible that maternal mortality attributable to postpartum hemorrhage could be reduced by as much as 30%. So what do you think are the next steps, given that clearly this has been funded by an organization that is interested in improving global access to quality health. Where do you see it going from here? What 
I believe has happened, which I think is exactly the right thing to do now, is to do a large-scale clinical trial of tranexamic acid in low-income country settings to see if it actually has the promise that we think it did based on the model. I wouldn't start an intervention just based on the model because I think you need to prove it in clinical care. Uh, there is now a large multinational study being done on tranexamic acid to understand if it actually has the promise that we suggest it might have in this paper. Certainly. Well, we want to thank you for a very interesting discussion today as well as for a review of your manuscript. We thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join us, and we hope our listeners enjoy this review of this manuscript, which is publicly available on our website as well as through iTunes. Thank you, Dr. Goldenberg. Thank you very much. Enjoyed the discussion. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. This episode was brought to you in association with the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org.